deep peace of the running wave to you, deep peace of the flowing air to you, deep peace of the quiet earth to you, deep peace of the shining stars to you, deep peace of the gentle night to you, moon and stars pour their healing light on you, deep peace to you. Welcome to the All Creation Podcast. I'm Chris Searles, co-founder and executive editor of allcreation.org. We're here to interview eco-theologian Mary D. Young about one of the most difficult to discuss topics in the world, apocalypse. We will in part explore Mary's views on what I consider to be society's now dawning apocalypsis, the revelation that human beings cannot live without the construct of wildernesses that make our lives possible, Earth's literal life support system, I consider Mary to be one of the most gifted guides and translators in the movement to reconnect Christians and perhaps searchers of all kinds to the idea of sacredness being embodied in the living world, and also to the power and necessity of claiming our indigeneity. Mary's varied forms of academic work, community building work, rewilding work, real life practice, and eco-spiritual companioning are extensive. She works primarily in the fields of sacred ecology, eco-theology, and applied mythology. I recommend checking out all of Mary's interviews, as well as her extensive writings and offerings at waymarkers.net. On top of all of this, Mary is a co-parent of four and the co-founder and chair of Chiste Green Space, a public forest reclamation and recreation project that brings neighbors together to co-create a safe, beautiful space for play, adventure, and connecting deeply to the natural world. Mary, welcome. Oh, Chris, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to this conversation. And hello to your listeners. And I look forward to what we, what we get to dive into and talk about together today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I, I'm particularly excited to speak with you because I feel like you've already found the real positive side of this reckoning and transformation into becoming more connected to the life force reality that is present everywhere that people voice in various ways. And this idea of indigeneity, I think is really key right now. I, I find your journey and your story of reconnection to your tribal roots in Scotland to be extremely compelling. And I'm wondering if you can begin by explaining this relatively new term indigeneity and talk about your personal sense of indigeneity and how you came to it and where you are in that relationship now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it is a good way to begin that conversation and really all conversations related to our work in the world by acknowledging that I'm not indigenous to the lands upon which I live. I live with absolute gratitude upon the unceded territory and traditional lands of the Duwamish tribe. This is Coast Salish people in the Pacific Northwest. And just even acknowledging that as a practice, I think helps begin to clarify for those of us who come from settler colonizing culture that, oh, I'm not from this place. And that, that realization alone, I feel, is a tremendous invitation into curiosity and a deeper sense of then who am I? We know more of who we are 
when we know where we are and where we come from. So my personal journey, I think with coming to terms that I, I'm not from the Pacific Northwest, um, has led me deeper into my matrilineal lineage, especially, which is kind of the Northern Highlands of Scotland and into a deep and now longstanding practice within Celtic spirituality, a way for me to kind of stay in my lane, if you will, as I have endeavored to practice earth-based spirituality within the Christian tradition and how to bring forth and reconnect to ways of being um, a part of a faith tradition that profoundly connects me to the land. And it's fantastic to know that within the Christian household, there are these mystical streams that allow that sort of reconnection to place and, and land. And I have just found that to be a really critical move in my own journey to, to locate where I'm from. And, and really, we're all indigenous to a place. We really are. So, you know, there's cultural indigeneity, there's spiritual indigeneity. And then ultimately, hopefully, as we pursue and deepen into that kind of knowledge, we can broaden into what it means to be indigenous to the earth community and all connect to our origins, our earth origins, our earth community, and hopefully be about this resurgence of a real profound earth spirituality too. I want to try to ask just a little more on this. I find this fundamental question that you mentioned in, in another interview, how do we understand the presence of the divine, the presence of the sacred to be a really core question that seems to be missing in dominant culture, at least here in the United States, that we, we're very much not in recognition of the sacred and the divine or its presence culturally. And I feel like in part that your work has led to a very profound sense of constant connectedness, sort of a namaste kind of idea. I see the light in you. And you have mentioned this idea that when you notice something in the other than human world, a tree, for instance, it's actually the, really the process of your perception, realizing that you're being noticed. And I find that fascinating. And also a moment of sacredness, this, this connection of recognition with another living being to me is purely magical in, in so many ways. So I'd love to just hear you kind of talk around that for a second. Yeah, it is. It's, it is magical. It's enchanted. And let's even tie this back into um, what it means to be indigenous, this profound connection to place. And, and then let's, okay. So then we're going to just do some real quick, broad stroke work. And this is all, so I have to name it as generalizing and broad. And we're just, we're just going to swath color a wall for a minute. The Western Christian project, as it began to move West and colonize the world, had to do something very specific so that it could begin to move like this all-consuming wave. It had to disassociate. It had to disassociate 
any sort of sense that sacred presence, that God was an imminent presence on the planet. So we had to create cosmologies and stories that extracted God from, from the humus, from, from the earth, and place that concept, that metaphor, that idea of God into the heavens. You know, so we create this idea of, of a sky God. And in that move, what is now accomplished is the earth is desacralized. It becomes an it. It loses its subjectivity. It loses its personhood. It is a, it is a bunch of matter that can be molded and melded by human hands. So again, we are just doing some real broad stuff. So in that move, we then now in our modern kind of white Western mind, because that is dominant culture, we exist primarily in a worldview that is desacralized. Um, the Jewish philosopher Martin Buber talks about kind of living in encounters in this Western worldview in an I-it paradigm. I am I and everything else is an it. It allows me to objectify it, dominate it, consume it. When we begin to recover ways of seeing the earth as sacred, as recovering a sense of the numinous within nature of an imminent and wildly present God. Um, Hildegard of Bingen, 12th century German mystic, talks about Veriditas, this, this greening power of, of the divine within all life. When we, when we begin to reconnect to that reality, then our posture shifts from this I-it way of interrelating to an I-thou with a capital T. It is this holy encounter that I am now encountering thou all around me. The tree is a thou, the birds are a thou, the, the herbs and the flowers are a thou. And so that is, that is a switch. And then sacramentality is, is reintroduced and it demands an ethic, an earth ethic that is outside of, of the boundaries of the white Western mind, where we see and interact and engage the holy in every step we take, whether it's on some mountainous wilderness trek or on the concrete in front of your very urban house, everything becomes enchanted magical, mysterious. Um, yeah. Well, that's so beautiful. And I, I identify so strongly with everything you're saying from sort of my own experience. And it's so interesting to hear you describe all of these things because there's an incredibly profound Native American you probably are familiar with, John Trudell, a lot of the conclusions that you've come to through your academic research and your actual practice and, and the varied forms that that has is a different voicing of the same kinds of conclusions and values. And I think that is so exciting because here is a literal indigenous American who has a, a gift for, he was a spokesman for the American Indian movement for 10 years and a great poet. And you guys have come to so many of the same conclusions 
I see that as just really, really positive. Yeah. And I, and I think that certainly those conclusions, I mean, I haven't gotten there on my own. So I, I honor um, my indigenous teachers who, um, namely Randy Woodley, uh, Cherokee elder who is in Oregon and this invitation, or I would even say more of a challenge is what Randy offered me um, to, to convert my Western mind into an indigenous mind. And this, I think, brings us really well into the whole conversation of apocalypse. I mean, right now we're feeling like, oh, you know, <laughs> expletive. End of the world as we know it, right? Let's cue REM. This is the end of the world as we know it. And I don't feel fine. I'm super troubled. I have anxiety. I can't sleep at night. You know, I, I long to go lie down where the wood drake, <laughs> you know, as you know, Wendell Berry invites, lie down with the wood drake and find the peace of the wild things. And, and another way to decolonize our imagination is to remember that this is not the first time that an apocalypse has hit this planet because dominator culture is the one who wields the apocalypse. And so this has happened before. There has been complete and total destruction of the worlds that others have known, be they indigenous communities, tribes, or the passenger pigeon. We have destroyed total worlds as we have moved across the globe in this colonizing white Western impulse. And that serves us really well to connect to that reality. It invites, I think, us to connect to the tribes in our places because they have shown such resilience. Their wisdom ways and their traditional ecological knowledge and indigenous knowledge offer us generously and undeservedly ways that we can resiliently live through this time, but not in a way that I think hopes for a return. And I think this is really part of the adaptation work that we've now got to be about. As people of faith, we've got to change our language. We can't pray and hope that the planet will somehow be in its abundant forms that maybe I was fortunate to grow up in as a young child. We have to have the courage now to emerge in new ways. And that's this profound adaptation that we witness, I think, through listening and learning from Indigenous communities because of their profound adaptation that they had to do. And that will bring us uh, collectively into worldviews of seeing the earth as sacred once again, even in our current place of location. So even here in Duwamish territory in Seattle, Washington, I can recover ways of practicing my indigenous Celtic spirituality, but I can do it here as I lean in and learn from the tribal people of, of this place. There's so much in, in what you're saying. But I want to stick with apocalypse for a little bit and talk about the popular cultural understanding of it, the sacred sort of understanding of it, your views on how we are supposed to respond 
in all of this in the context of how you perceive what's going on to the living world, not entirely the more than human world, just the biodiversity. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if we're all paying attention and we know that we're in the sixth extinction, we know absolutely that the apocalypse is happening all around us to the living world. I mean, we're seeing biodiversity decrease. We're seeing extinction rates increase. It's very telling as we are moving into a pollinator time in the Pacific Northwest. 10 years ago, I would have been, been seeing so many more bumblebees and butterflies. And I can count on one hand, maybe over the course of a week, how many butterflies I now see. I just want to jump in for the listeners and say your backyard actually backs up to a 43 acre yeah, forest. It does. So when you're talking about only being able to count a few butterflies in a week, this is a really significant thing. This isn't on your commute up the highway. No. This is when you go into a wilderness space. Right. But, but this is okay. So you talk about courage versus hope and yes, species decline is all around us. And you had mentioned in the intro, this project that I've been about for um, the last almost 15 years, restoring this urban wood, Chisti green space, the name of the land in the Lesotho seed language, so this is the, the native tribal language of the Duwamish Coast Salish people, is Quatich. Quatich. And this translates into green and yellow spine. And so for these 15 years, we've been working as a community to plant the conifers that would, you know, give the impression of the green and these various native deciduous trees that would give the impression of yellow. And in so doing, very low bird biodiversity has actually seen a turnaround. We now have bald eagles and so many different kinds of hawks, cooper's mm. hawks, red-tailed hawks. I mean, we have a lot of bird biodiversity and the Audubon, I, I love this teaching that comes from the Audubon is that, and this gets into really cool conversations around Christian animism. When birds are present, the likelihood of a healthy landscape is there too. So there are things that we can be doing. It takes courage though, to step into these spaces and uh, participate in co-creating, bringing back a name. And I think that that's even like, again, it comes back to our own indig indigeneity. What is your name? I mean, not like my name is Mary DeYoung, but like, what is your name? What would your bones tell you your name is? What do your ancestors tell you your name is? If we can do the work of bringing these worlds back together again, bring our inner wilderness and the outer wilderness back together again. Life will be enchanted. Life will be full. Life will be healthy and good. That'll emanate out throughout our locatedness and our communities and our neighborhoods. And ultimately, I think the world, will this save us from the apocalypse? Will it save us from the rupture? Possibly. Because it requires digging in. It requires actually going into the rupture. And just like when you plant a tree, you're digging in and you're removing things that shouldn't be there anymore. And you're creating conditions for health and flourishing. You know, it's, it's these mindset shifts. If we can be that way in our places. To me, this is again, kind of the apocalypsis that you just said a moment ago, you know, could this sort of save us? Yeah, it could, you know, I completely agree with that. 
Absolutely. If people become more resourced, as you say, from wilderness, both within and externally, that this um, the benefit of feeling this sense of connectivity and responsibility and you know relationship and love and all of these things can then emerge. Yeah, and so that's where I think, and I love this 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 um, very intentional playing with apocalypse and then apocalypsis, where the apocalypsis is this great revealing that the rupture that could be the apocalypse is revelatory in the sense that it contains wisdom for our, our rapture, right? So within the rupture, we'll find something we'll find, we'll recover something more. And, and in terms of like this idea of revelation and this source of wisdom, I, I feel like it, it makes sense for, for your listeners, for our um, kind of audience to, Let's go back to um, to Hebrew scripture, and so yes, to a source of wisdom. But what I and this is this is when we get to do the fun work of finding indigenous through lines, even through a um, kind of a, a sacred scripture that has unfortunately been aligned with a colonizing movement. But we can still find such profound um, insight into the ways that. In, within the Judeo-Christian tradition, there they were deeply listening to the land for revelation, for guidance, for, for sacred wisdom. And so the book of Job, there is this direction, this almost command again, to ask the animals, ask the animals what they think and let them teach you. Let the birds tell you what's going on. I mean, right there, there's the Audubon. <laughs> But the birds tell you what's going on. Listen, the fish in the ocean will tell you their stories. Put your ear to the earth. Learn the basics. Where is that in Job? This is Job 14. So this is the apocalypsis. You'll find revelation. You will find divine guidance and wisdom. You will find way markers when you listen well to your bioregion. And when we were thinking about how an apocalypse has hit repeatedly so many different species, groups, and, and habitats, we again have another source of resiliency. So we have the indigenous communities to see how they have lived through apocalypse. We have the wild ones who have lived through apocalypse. And what do we see in them? They don't double down on their ways of like, I've only flown this way. I'm going to keep on flying this way. I've only swum up this one river. I'm going to only swim up that river. No, they, they adapt. So this is like sacred evolutionary biology. Like they adapt and so must we. So that is what I feel the wild ones are telling us with we, if we do actually do the work of putting our ear to the earth and listen, we find that we have revelation and the disclosure of great knowledge right literally in our own backyards yeah john trudell says this in the first piece on his first album when he says something along the lines of he looked to the clouds and his elders told him 
be patient, impatient one. You're trying to become something when what you should be trying to do is remember who you are. Mm. Oh, that's beautiful. And I hear you saying the same that's thing. It is, isn't it? It's remembering. And I really love playing with two different ways of talking about remembrance. I think it's an intellectual exercise of literally remembering where you've come from, remembering who you are, and then just put a hyphen in there, re-membering. It's becoming a member once again of the whole community of creation, returning to the whole. And the rewilding project, um, which uh, our, our work in the woods would be categorized as such, and there's so many great rewilding pro projects going on all around the world, which is this, um, this effort to restore wilderness areas building land bridges or reintroducing, you know, apex predators, you know, all these things that bring in a whole relationship instead of separating things out and separating the wolf from the habitat, you know, putting a, I, an interstate through, um, you know, a mountain pass and then separating an ecosystem. We can do really, really good work by remembering, re-membering, bringing back the wholeness of relationship within our bioregions, but also within ourselves. So yes, yes, remember who you are and remember that who you are is, uh, is a nested whole. I am because you are, Chris, right? This is Ubuntu. I am because the red-tailed hawk is. It's a profound shift for us. Yeah, there's so many pieces to articulate. And I, I want to comment also your, your great statement you just made about becoming a member of the community of creation. Mm -hmm. That's, that's sort of the paradigm shift it that, is. yeah, that needs to take place. And, and you also mentioned this fragmentation that happens when a highway gets dropped really anywhere in the world, a mountain pass over a pasture, through a forest, etc. These are segmentations of what were whole ecosystems. In my work with biointegrity, I talk a lot about vital organ ecosystems. And I think that's a right way to think about the sort of functionality that ecosystems bring to the larger life support system. But this idea of fragmentation is so powerful because in a way it's like some of us are awakening perhaps into a world where we realize as white Western people, uh, predominantly in terms of who I know, that our basis of life is about fragmentation. And we've kind of, we've done so many great things with fragmentation in terms of creating healthcare resources or creating sanitation for large human communities or figuring out how to deliver the mail, you know, communicate via Zoom and do a podcast. There's, there's just so many amazing aspects to the built world. And yet it's all built on a paradigm that is disconnected from the reality of how this life support system is constructed. And at the same time, I, when you mentioned the mountain pass and the highway, this idea of ecological fragmentation came to mind, but also inner fragmentation. Yes. And um, I've also heard you talk about how you work with some of the people when you act as a spiritual, I would say guide and companion. I think it's a very beautiful humility that you identify as a spiritual companion. And so when you talk about this phenomenon of feeling the, the, the life of another organism because its perception of you 
makes you recognize it, whether it's a tree or a mosquito or whatever, that that and some of the work that you've done as a spiritual companion and guide helps, you know, in one anecdotal scenario, just one of the many people you've worked with helps that person suddenly realize that they are seen. And in our society today, this fragmentation amongst our families and within ourselves, within our political culture, you know, you can certainly find many examples. This is a core issue for us people, you know, we're in pain. A lot of people are feeling like they are unseen. And the beauty of finding that missing piece in your life through a greater relationship with the whole that you talk about. I think is so exciting. And again, a, an aspect of this apocalypsis that you're helping to usher in here, this, this revelation of the incredible bliss and ebullience that can come from having a relationship with another. We, a lot of people know it through their pets, but there's just so much here that is um, empowering is, is maybe the wrong word, but um, certainly unburdening of some of the mental baggage that people have that keeps them fragmented, separated from the natural world and is good for the overall sense of self. And, and so, okay, so I went on a little too long about that, but I wanna kind of explore this, this piece of apocalypsis a little more. Um, you know, do you have a sense that there is an apocalypsis or, or an uncovering a revelation in the Christian world or in the religious world right now that is about this connection to wilderness spirituality, or I'm not sure what you would want to call it. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that there's a collective consciousness rising around this as we face um, the fear of the unknown, as, as we have lost all pre-COVID certitude, right? I mean, it wasn't that long ago when we felt fairly certain that the summers would be, you know, relatively warm and, and, and maybe dry, but that the winters would bring rain and, and snow and, and I could get on a plane and go visit my in-laws. Kids were going to go to school. Right? I mean, everything, everything ruptured. That certitude has been taken from us. And I think in that, um, when anything that we feel we have known to be true and constant and maybe even eternal begins to reveal its cracks, I see in that, well, this is chaos theory, right? So as things begin to break apart, it's in the, again, the rupture in the cracking that the new way is revealed. So chaos creates the context for new creation to come through. And that's what we're seeing, because I think that even in the Christian church, we have had to look in the mirror this last year, especially, I mean, we're just on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. We have had to look in the mirror and look at how have we been complicit in the rupture of racial relations. So when the rupture happens and you begin to question all that was, and I think this is happening in the Christian church, we are able to, again, if we're willing to dig, if we're willing to put our, our foot on the shovel and do some work, our own inner work, when we're willing to kind of take off the concrete, 
take away the concrete and, and dig in and see what roots are there that are causing such harm and damage and disassociation. We have the opportunity to plant new things or bring back the things that, um, like, you know, I'm again thinking kind of as an urban naturalist, bring back the native plants that should have been there all along. This is, I think, what we're seeing with this impulse of, like, I would say, the wild church, you know, movement. We're seeing this with, you know, most people that I do one on one work with through Wild Soul Guidance are people from the Judeo Christian tradition who have had it with stories of disassociation and spiritual practices that don't locate them in their their homescape that you know stories that would say it doesn't really matter where you are because you're on a journey with god you can just go with god and you'll be fine they want to know that where they are matters and they want to recover ways of connecting spiritually to their place and this this to me is all very hopeful it is i would say find hope in this that as we recover these ways of um finding sacred practices um spiritual rituals that we can um really engage we will again recover a sense of the divine that goes back to the beginning of our conversation that is present and numinous and it returns the sacramentality to the lands upon which we live and so i i do see that this is happening people want to live in a good way and I think they're beginning to align being in a good way in the very intersectional way that it is that to live in a good way requires even our sacred cosmologies to be rooted back to the earth. Can you also talk about this idea of journey consciousness, perhaps? Yeah. Well, let's see. Let, <laughs> could, could we, let's do it this way. So let's put on, I'm going to put on my, um, my mythologist hat and uh, let's do some applied mythology because I think this gets interesting because um, when I, when I hear the news, read the news, um, when I am in, and when, you know, I'm embodied living through the times that we're in um, the times that we are in have all the markers of myth. We are living through mythic times. And this relates to the journey in so much as um, the, there are these archetypal stages that any journey of transformation will bring you through. And if, if, if we are to be reformed or transformed, we must, first of all, leave the village. Okay, now we're, I'm going to capitalize village. Okay, so village is the capital V. Now we're in the world of archetypes. And the village is often the place where we can even call it the city. You know, it's any sort of collection of culture. And that is the place where hierarchy lives. Um, it is where the status, because it's a status quo. And status quo is supported by systems of power. And so when you start playing with wanting to, you know, change things up a little bit and change the status quo, you're, you're poking the power beast. And that's the, that's hierarchy. And you will, those who would want to um, silence you or keep you from changing things are certainly going to oppress you. So that that's myth, mythically systems of, of hierarchy. So to, to transform the village, 
to transform the status quo, to transform hierarchy, to transform the hierarchical nature of the Christian church. We have to, we, we were talking about this the kind of, I think in the pre-beginning, Chris, you and I were talking about being at the village gates. Those of us who are willing to open up the doors and say, I'm putting on my backpack and I've got to go. You know, every, every heroine, hero, um, you know, don't, we don't have, you know, don't think of it as gender binaries, but everyone who is going to transform the world. And that is all of us has to leave the village and you step beyond the gates and you step into the forest, into the woods is a common refrain. And whenever there are woods or a forest in a fairy tale or a myth, you are on high alert for total and utter transformation. And it's probably going to require deconstruction. It's going to require some fear. It's going to feel like the very world that you knew is, is um, being annihilated because you've just left all the comforts of the village. And now you're living in a wilderness space and you will find guides. This is, if you're familiar at all with Joseph Campbell's work around the, um, you know, the monomyth, um, I mean, there's, there's some good things to critique around Campbell's work. He was a man of his times. And there's also really, really great, um, wisdom that lives within this, this archetypal round. You go through the underworld journey. You're, you are having to confront, uh, the, the dragons, the beast, the shadow. Um, and what we now know is that we aren't on a journey that aims to annihilate the dragon or uh, kill the kill the beast. Our work, again, because we are asking the animals, I could even say, let's ask the dragon to put our ear to the underworld and see what it tells us, you know, using this Job language. We're going to learn about um, those wild parts within us that need to be reintegrated, that need to be befriended. And so it's very, very different energy than kind of a, a swashbuckling hero who's going to, you know, stand on the back of the dragon and, you know, annihilate it. We find the apocalypsis through listening deeply to our journeys and finding the revelation that leaving the village provides us because ultimately um, the heroine has to come back home. So through this journey, you return home so utterly transformed, reformed. Um, we've now performed, so there's a lot of language here. We've performed a journey round and we come back to the village in such a way, this is Odysseus, that our utter transformation requires the village to change. And that is profound, especially I think when we apply this sort of imagination, this mythic imagination to the Christian church, because if we have had the courage through this time of rupture to step away a little bit from, from what has held us and formed us initially, the village, when we come back, we are able to see the village in a different way and bring the gift of our transformation to, again, archetypally to the village, requiring its status quo to shift as well. And so that's, um, I think, it, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to play with 
the apocalypse idea as an invitation into a journey that the that the rupture is actually like the gates um I don't know. It's like, it's like the Holy of Holies being ripped totally open and we're being asked to walk in or walk out and our journey then commences. But when we return, we're going to hold the village accountable, hold it to account and demand that, 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 uh, status quo, um, the place of power shifts. And if we're all doing this, um, uh, chronically, uh, you know, commonly, if this becomes like our common way, then, then power never has a place to, to settle and then amass because it's always shifting and it's responsive to, um, those who have journeyed back in. Um, now I've just talked a lot. (laughs) Oh, I'm sitting here thinking everything you're saying is, you know, goes on a stone. I mean, it's just great. It's, um, Yeah. I think that it gets interesting also. So this is where my work as, I guess, a mythologist and a theologian kind of connects. Um, so we have to, we have to acknowledge that all constructs are all of our ideas of divine mystery are symbols and, and metaphor. I mean, it, it that's just the truth. I mean, we do not absolutely know the character of God. We don't, we don't know and in our great unknowing, um, our human tendency is to project um, ideas and concepts, myths and symbols. And that's that's okay, but it's just, or metaphors and symbols, I should say. We just gotta be able to be really clear on that. You know, I mean, God isn't a man, right? I mean, he isn't. So that's a yeah. real tough paradigm, I think. To, I know to it is. I behind. know. <laughs> But once we start practicing maybe some different ways, different symbols or different metaphors, and the Hebrew scripture and Christian scripture is full of a lot of alternatives. And it's really fun to try to find those. You know, we have a a flock of nine hens in our backyard and Hebrew scripture is full of references to God as in an avian form and even like a mother hen. And so that's metaphor, right? That's symbol. I have really learned a lot from the eco-theologian Sally McFaig, and maybe you can reference her in in the notes, Chris. Um, She has done significant work around um, the metaphors that we use to talk about God. And she invites a really important shift to talking about God in the metaphorical language of the earth, that the earth is the body of God. And using that metaphor um, in exchange for more um, what she would call monarchical language. So monarch language, um, which is typically the language of, you know, like Lord and King and castle and dominion. And, and well, we know how that associates and with colonizing behaviors, you know, it's like the dominant force on the planet and as one who has come up and through the evangelical Christian charismatic tradition, I know that metaphorical language through and through, and I know that it can be really damaging. So I've tried on, um, really I've embodied for many years, the metaphorical shift to the earth is the body of God. And again, this plays with the whole, you know, how do we recover a sense of the sacramentality of sacred earth? If earth is the body of God, if it's the primary incarnation, 
of, of the divine. Um, the first incarnation in Celtic spirituality, the earth would be considered the first incarnation. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the second incarnation. Um, then it shifts totally how we live upon this planet. And in, in Genesis as well, right? I mean, just the, the, the idea of the primary incarnation is, is, has been lost somehow, yes. even though it's there on page one. It's there. It's so it's all there. And so that, again, that's the return to an indigenous reading of scripture. Within mythology, it's understood that the earth speaks in myth. That the earth's primary language is in myth. And that's why in cultures all around the world, you have these amazing revelatory stories that communicate so much about human nature and the nature of the divine that come through myth, even, even, even giving us insight into the human journey, human formation and development. And so when I start working with myth now, I'm because of this, um, this understanding that the earth is the body of God, or this metaphor of the earth is the body of God. And this idea that the earth speaks in myth, then all of the fairy tales and myths and lore become, um, I mean, quite frankly, I mean, they're like on my shelf right next to all my theological books, because I believe that we have profound insight, um, to, I think they're sacred scripture. I think that they can almost be read as such. So what I, I guess what I, I want to, I, maybe we're going to be closing soon, but I think why I'm bringing this into this realm is because when we become emplaced in a really good way in our bioregions and our locatedness, we do well to learn and listen to the stories of the land. And this is another invitation. So if you're going to be doing the good work of getting to know the um, traditional tribes upon whose land you live, lean in a little bit to their stories too. Because that is a particular way that the divine has manifest, manifested in that part of the world. And we're at that place now with our consciousness to be able to do that, that we can, we can hold our particularity as people who have, you know, been formed by the Christian tradition. And that doesn't collapse. That doesn't, that identity doesn't collapse when I become curious and interested in learning about the stories of the land. In fact, it, it should inform it and it, I should be able to understand more about God because I'm now putting my ear to the earth to listen to the stories, to the names. So I can now hear the name Quatsich, right? This beloved 43 acre wood. I can hear the name green and yellow spine, and I can listen to the stories and of the land and hear those stories as a sacred, sacred scripture that God is speaking to me through the land, through the birds, through the trees, through Western red cedar, through a tail hawk. And that informs then how I live on my journey. And hopefully then how I show up in places of power where I can, I don't know, dig into the rupture, I guess. Yeah. And, and respond. I hope you have time for one more question. This ties really well to the idea of why don't we try and create the optimal outcome if we are in any sort of apocalypse? Let's respond to this in, in the best possible way. I feel like your work has really done, you know, a tremendous amount of trailblazing. That may not be the best metaphor, but showing the path and the experiential sort of benefits and, and the growth benefits that come from taking this pathway into a connectedness paradigm out of a kind of monarchical disconnectedness orientation to things 
And so I'm wondering if, if you can talk about, we've been talking a lot about the, I think literally the apocalypsis, this wilderness apocalypsis, the, the process of awakening, seeing the revelation in, in perhaps just your spiritual life, that you can have a, a greater, more enlivened spiritual life through connecting to the earth as this uh, primary place of divinity. And that wilderness is a place where truth really lives. Um, that there's, a, there's an integrity there that, that sort of empowers that relationship. So can you talk about an optimal future where let's say all people or most people each in their own ways have come into this paradigm of connectedness. And now we live in a future where we're not faced with the same types of problems we are now because we have evolved. Let's say it's in you know 15 years and there's been this massive cultural um, benostrophe, as they say, where a, a really great thing has happened instead of a really bad thing has happened. What does it feel like? What, it, what is that life like in the future? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I, okay, so yeah, putting that again, that imaginal lens, when I, think forward, when I imagine forward, my, my sense would be that there is um, a collective flourishing. And we can't hold uh, a standard of what that flourishing is to maybe what maybe someone could have experienced in 1982 when we had no sense of constraint or restraint. Um, a flourishing for all. So this is within the human and the more than human communities alike, where every, every living being has a uh, habitat, has um, food abundance. So there's not, you know, food scarcity, um, has shelter. So I guess that's also habitat and can um, live in such a way where they're, uh, offspring or their next generation has almost a guaranteed um, right to life, you know, cause we still will have, you know, sickness and illness, probably, probably another pandemic, who knows? Um, hopefully not, but there is this profound sense of flourishing for all. And I think to get there, and these are some of the solutions that I hope that we can collectively work towards. It is eliminating the disparity gap. So any system that continues to support uh, multi-billionaires and sees then uh, housing shortage and um, food scarcity all over the place. I mean, we've, we've got to remedy that and, and actually where it begins to happen. And this is where I think, you know, I, I am so, uh, rooted in hope that even when I tried it, like say, ah, I don't think we should hope anymore. We just need to have courage to emerge and courage to adapt. I find that I am intrinsically and wholly formed by hope because <laughs> I do feel like I see hope in these places and I see it in the ground organic, like organic roots, right? Isn't in it validated in, in your experience with restoring Chisti and, you know, we had the snowpocalypse in Texas a couple of months ago and it's as green as it can be now. And it, yes. you know, people thought it would kill all of the, the vegetation and that right. hasn't happened. It hasn't happened. And, and uh, yeah. And so, right. Those sorts of kind of um, apocalyptic events, like the ice in Texas, I mean, it was all over the news. We were watching the news about that being so, you know, curious and, 
you know, our hearts being moved to compassion about what that might be like to experience. And I was actually just in conversation with, um, with someone who's also living in Texas, who had the experience of hundreds and hundreds of yellow finches who were migrating during the time that the ice came. And they were all literally ice bound in her backyard. And she said every square inch of her backyard was covered in yellow with yellow birds. And she was bringing out seed and bringing out warm water. And she had such a profound experience of sacred interconnection because of the conditions of the ice, because of this, you know, kind of apocalyptic event and has come through that now feeling well, transformed. And I guess that's, that's the power of the times that we're living in. We are being transformed and we get to inform the outcome of that. Am I going to, um, Oh yeah. Double down on the old ways and say, no, like I, you know, I've never adapted in this way, so I'm not going to do it now we need to allow these times to break us open to imagine a world that feeds the goldfinch alongside of the ice storm so that it, it ends up with, you know, green grass. And, you know, I, it's all interconnected. Um, I was going to also share that like in Seattle, unfortunately, you know, we have, it's a crisis with being able to shelter all of the humans who live here and food scarcity is a very real thing. And as the city, as the village with the capital V still tries to figure themselves out. Meanwhile, the people, you know, the citizens are networking and creating these amazing free food pantries, free food refrigerators. Like you can literally walk down to a, an urban corner and there's like a refrigerator plugged in. You can open it up wow. and there's fresh milk and eggs and the people are making this happen. Our courage is a resource that if we network that courage with all of our community, and that's ecological thinking, our flourishing is going to be dependent upon us linking arms with everyone and no longer seeing ourselves as as an isolated individual, you know, looking up for number one. That's another American myth that needs to fall. Um, We are on a common journey on our common home. And when we start living like that, then our future, I think, will have flourishing for all. So those are just some thoughts. I'd love to, I mean, well, before we close, and I don't know what, how your closing protocol is, but I'd love to offer a Celtic blessing. Please. So, well, I offer this Celtic blessing that is one that I say to my children every night before they go to bed. And I feel like, especially as it resonates with the verse in Job about, you know, kind of like listening to the elements again, listening to the wild ones as a source of revelation, as a source of knowledge and wisdom, but also as a source of blessing that we are being beheld by the wild world as much as we behold it. And my sense is that there is delight and wonder that the wild ones experience when they see us too, when we move in a good way, when we're not dominating and oppressing and when we are in true kinship and community. So you could imagine that the elements are, are blessing you this time. And I, and I do hope that this conversation has has been a blessing. So these words, 
deep peace of the running wave to you, deep peace of the flowing air to you, deep peace of the quiet earth to you, deep peace of the shining stars to you, deep peace of the gentle night to you, moon and stars pour their healing light on you, deep peace to you. And today is the uh, full moon of May. This is the full flower moon. So experience the deep peace of the full moon this day. Thank you, Mary. Mm -hmm. And listeners, I want to tell you, Mary's current program focus is on a, a, a module called Wild Summer. This is part of her Wild Seasons series that you can find at waymarkers.net. It's a virtual rewilding course aimed at providing guidance and accompaniment in moving through the seasons of the earth with intentionality and sacramentality. The topics that are surveyed in this Wild Summer and Wild Seasons series include eco-theology, eco-womanist theology, sacred nature connection, somatic ecology, which means our body's relationships with the other organisms and our physical surroundings, our perceptions that we've been talking about to some degree, and also exploring your own mytho-poetic identity, your own hero's journey. Yeah, absolutely. You can learn more at waymarkers.net or waymarkers.net slash wild dash summer. Thank you so much, Mary. I, I'm, I'm so glad this is our first conversation that we went ahead and recorded it. I can't wait to have more. Have a great day and a, and a, a blessed day and, and a, a magical moon communion and to be continued for sure.